So I was thinking of maybe calling the local police department today to tell them that I feel like I've been burglarized. And they would probably ask me, well, is anything missing? And I would say, not that I can exactly see, but I really have the strong sense that burglars have been in my house and have taken things. That, of course, is essentially the rationale adopted by President Trump and his legal team. They haven't really started with any evidence. They don't have any evidence. Trump just sort of feels like he won the election, and they have to go and find some rationale for supporting that. Well, what is that doing to our democracy? What is that doing to our unity? I think you know, but we'll talk to Frank Rich in just a second about that. A little bit later, we'll talk to Michael John Winters, a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter, about the fact that we have a new, for the first time ever, a Roman Catholic black cardinal, which may be significant also just in conjunction with having uh, Joe Biden as president-elect, a guy who kind of makes no secret uh, of his uh, passion for his Catholicism. Uh, you kind of wonder if that whole social gospel thing is going to get really tried out here for the first time in a long time. We'll also talk about the NFL, which is rolling the dice uh, with COVID-19 and having both successes and failures. All right. Joining us now, as I said before, Frank Rich, writer at large for New York Magazine, executive producer for the HBO series Succession, so many other things as well, and a longtime friend of the show. Frank, good to have you back on. Good to hear your voice. Great to talk to you, Colin. So I already know your answer to this, but I'll run it anyway, just for a theatrical sake. I mean, there's sort of, you could do a glass full, glass empty scenario right now. Glass full is, we're not Chile. We had somebody make a very strong uh, challenge to our institutions and ranging from uh, your local uh, registrar of voters and poll moderator all the way to some of the appellate court, appellate courts around the country. Things seem to be holding pretty true. Uh, and we should feel good about that. We should feel good about the reinstitution uh, of some kind of civic competence in the White House when Biden gets in. The glass half empty, which I know is <laughs> where you're going to go, is that we are more damaged, really, than we even realize that there's some fundamental damage to our ability to function as a civil society that that is running very, very deep and won't be eradicated by the disappearance of President Trump. You have the floor. Well, uh, yes, I guess I'm, I am a sort of glass uh, uh, half empty kind of guy. I would frame it slightly differently. I don't look there, there, there is a positive side. Uh, the system is held. It's, it's widely believed to be perhaps the most accurate ele national election in history. Um, there are Republican office holders at the state and local level who stood up to this lunatic and his schemes. And there are also judges, some of them appointed by Donald Trump himself, that have taken a very hard line and, and reacted contemptuously to these fictive, uh, frivolous uh, lawsuits uh, that have been trying to destabilize the, the election results. But I feel the most alarm. Uh, but I feel the most alarming thing is not so much even the permanent damage this might do or the temporary damage this might do in undermining institutions all all trump has done from the you know for four years now this is just the latest example but it does show us that the the fact is that there's 70 million people in this country who voted for him and the overwhelming majority of them are happy to believe in a fictional presentation of reality and so and we've and we've seen it knows no bounds it's, it's gone way past the stage of he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. it literally, he is he is uh, 
you know, ratcheted things up to such an extent that Republican office holders in places like Georgia are having their lives threatened, their families' lives threatened. Conservative Republicans, conservative Republicans in public office, and these people don't care. They want to believe whatever big lie Trump is selling this week. And that is something that cannot be fixed, even, you know, instantly. And it's going to take a long time. And one, you know, one positive thing of all that Trump has done is he's revealed all the many of the fissures in the federal government and places where things have to be shored up because he found every loophole and crevice and, you know, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, just law enforcement within the federal government, within the White House, that can be enacted by legislation uh, over time and one hopes will be. But this, this psychological uh, run or psychotic run that, you know, almost half the country has been on is uh, devastating. And, and there's nothing to suggest uh, it will stop. Yeah, I, I will just offer an anecdotal uh, and small sample size addition to that, which is that so over the weekend, I read a column for Hearst newspapers here in Connecticut. Uh, I wrote a column yeah. kind of explaining, advising Trump on how to pack and where to get boxes and stuff and, you know, whether he needs a dumpster and um, and wove through it some of the challenges he faces and how he might want to do a kind of Jason Bourne thing. And Melania opens up a moped shop on Mykonos or something. And, you know, I mean, I didn't really think it was particularly small-minded or wounding and I'm pretty used to how readers react to these things. I was really surprised by the number of Trump supporters who who were furious at me in a way that they typically haven't been. And Frank, I do think one difference is you know, if you're a Trump supporter and he's in office, you can brush off certain kinds of criticism about, you know, whether he's corrupt, whether he's temperamentally unsuited for the job, because he's got the job. And and I do think, to your point, when he's out of that job, people are going to be surprised at the level of spleen they encounter and just sort of his you know, grassroots supporters. But your thoughts? I agree. And in fact, some time ago, well before the election, I wrote I, I mean, a couple of years ago. Trumpism after Trump, if he loses, is going to be very, very angry because, uh, first of all, they want to believe it was stolen. He was robbed. It was a hoax and so on. But also they don't have him in the White House anymore. Uh, and they have a, um, a figure in Biden whom uh, they can't quite really turn into the enemy they want, want want to turn him into, but not because of his centrist politics, just because he's a bland figure. He just does not seem like someone who's going to head a satanic pedophile, you know, uh, conspiracy of uh, the, the kind of stuff that's uh, uh, sold by uh, QAnon and others. Um, so that spleen, as you said, that, that bile is going to turn in on itself and it's going to be ugly. And we don't know what form it's going to take. Quite honestly, I do think that there are a number, there's a new generation of Republicans who are happy to ride this wave and and want to ride it and whose views have been in line with Trump since he took office, whether it be, you know, Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz or Nikki Haley or Pompeo or any of these, these uh, you know, uh, bootlickers of his in the Republican Party. But they don't have what he had as a performance artist. Um, and I'm not even I'm not saying that performance art. I enjoy Trump's ever even before he was in politics, but they're not going to be able to sop up, I don't think, that anger and express it the way he could. 
he'll keep trying to do it himself, of course, or whatever vehicle he chooses, which I'm sure will be a money-making vehicle because he has to find new grifts very fast because of all his debt. But he's, you know, he's not going to last forever. And this, this is going to be really ugly and, uh, and beyond, in some ways, the reach of electoral politics during these four years. Uh, Frank Rich, I want to give credit where credit is due. And before succession, you, of course, executive producer of Veep. Um, like everything, a long time ago, you told me that when Veep would go to Washington, uh, people would come up to you guys and say, how did you know? How did you know about that thing? That thing that you thought you had made up because it was so preposterously uh, exaggerated. Uh, people thought that you were eavesdropping uh, on conversations you weren't supposed to know about. So let's hear uh, Selena Myers uh, at the end of one of her runs for office. News from Nevada. What? Uh, the new votes are tilting heavily toward O'Brien. Apparently most of them are military absentees. Of course, Fort Dutton, it all makes sense. No, 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 that doesn't make any sense. Nevada is my state. I'm going to be president. I'm going to be the first elected lady president. I'm going to have a lovely inauguration. Billy Joel is going to sing. So you guys have to stop the recount. I'm sorry, what? Stop the count. Right. Shut up, Gary. Ma'am, we can't. I don't care. The train has very publicly left the station uh, and derailed at high speed. No, yeah, stop the count. Ma'am, this would look like a size 14 flip-flop. We really can't. I don't give a f You're going to cancel this recount like Anne Frank's bat mitzvah. Yeah, I'm on it. All right, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was written like, what, three years ago? Yeah. Um, at least. Uh, we're very glad that we got out before the last we got out you know a, a, a year and a half or so ago um because we couldn't top what's going on now that we that we have seen repeatedly um our shows reenacted uh in the past year by trump and his uh, minions has been just mind-blowing and you know, dave mandel the showrunner um uh of of veep said to me and you know talking a couple of weeks ago the show is more relevant now more timely now than when it was on air which is probably true but we could we couldn't top it and when you see something like four seasons total landscaping that fiasco i don't know if I, someone tweeted that's better than feet maybe it is I, I don't know if we could have come up with something that preposterous uh, next to a you know a porn bookstore and a crematorium. I mean, well, no, it felt it felt very Veep though. I mean, there are were a lot of sequences in Veep where the, the groundwork wasn't done appropriately, and you know she was showing up in places she didn't mean to be. So uh, so no, I think you can probably claim that one uh, as well. I, I want to talk about the fact that I mean, there's sort of the question of okay, let's say that. W as I think both of us think, we have a real, real problem. And it's sort of a grassroots problem. It's how almost half the country perceives something as opposed to how the other half perceives it. And mm -hmm. I guess, you know, one of the questions is, what kind of restoration can you do uh, in a situation like that? As you've suggested, people like Ted Cruz and Pompeo and, uh, are, are probably going to try to stage a candidacy in 2024 based very much uh, on Donald Trump's scripts. And that's assuming that he doesn't run in 2024. Um, it, but meanwhile, the problem, as you suggest, seems to exist on a much more personal level. And, and I don't know how you go about rehabilitating the consciousnesses of, of that many million people. I have to say, I don't know either. It feels like a cult that has to be deprogrammed, but obviously we can't do that. You constantly read it's sort of there's a kind of brand of centrist op-ed column that 
um, you and I read, where we'll just, this has been going on really since the uh, publication of uh, Hillbilly Elegy, just talk to those people. Everyone should just get together and talk. You know, we should meet in the diners in Pennsylvania uh, and 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 you know share our differences and come you know have this sort of come to Jesus or come to unity moment, but it but that's nonsense. That's not going to happen. And people and look, people on the left are angry too. I think it's a more traditional form of anger that that uh, may actually be to some extent quenched if if there are reforms in a Biden administration and and ensuing Congress that fix some things at the policy level. Um, but everyone is, you know, is just in a rage. And and um, my biggest hope, frankly, is that Biden is so boring. And I'm not saying this pejoratively. He just, he's, he is boredom personified, boredom in its best sense. And that you feel, you know, a, a good uncle is sort of in charge of things. A lot of other people be involved in doing the work. He's not going to be, at you, uh, you know, every other moment on Twitter or on the air. And maybe that cooling off provided, it's like putting a wet blanket or a warm blanket on top of the country for a couple of years will have an effect, but that's probably over optimistic and simplistic, but that's sort of my main hope right now that people say, Hey, I sort of like this. We don't have to listen to a president yelling at us uh, or riling us up every 10 minutes. And, and also, Trump, while Trump will stage rallies, I'm sure, with ticket prices that are high and VIP, you know, um, add-ons and all of that to make money, his ratings are not going to be what they were as president. The, the number, it is going to be a smaller number. It's going to be more like a Sean Hannity number or a Rush Limbaugh number, which is large by the standards of, you know, our industry, but small in terms of... Uh, the American public, and and you know maybe there'll be a cultural change, but I I just don't know. You know another problem with this, of course, and it's a problem that you've written about for decades, is the problem with the press itself and how it covers uh, Trump, and particularly the degree to which we there's been just this you know very very dichotomous fork in the road where the mainstream press has gone in one direction, uh, and everybody else has, uh, or the conservative press has gone in the other, uh, and so this past weekend the president gave his first post-election interview uh, on Sunday to Maria Bartiromo on Sunday morning futures on Fox News. Um, it was a 45-minute bizarre rambling performance in which she at, really at no on no occasion asked him for proof or in any way questioned uh, his version of reality. It made me think of a famous quote from Jamie Kerchick of the Brookings Institution who said years ago, everything Trump says makes sense when you just preface it with Donald from Queens, you're on the air. So let's hear how right. that sounded on Sunday. They were saying... He must be a great campaigner because he lost here, he lost here, he lost here, and he won the election. If a president, this is over a long, many period, hundreds of years, a hundred years or something, they went into all of the elections. If you win one of the five points, I won all five. If you win one of the five points, you become president. You automatically, sitting president gets reelected. I won all five and I still lost. There was only one reason for that, fraud. 
So, Frank, you know, there's as you've seen, I'm sure this morning, I mean, this is sort of a rambling kind of primary process stream of consciousness thing that it's even hard to understand what point he's making, something to do with an article in The Federalist, apparently. But I mean, there's also been a pretty big backlash in the press against Bartiromo for enabling this and allowing this to happen. And, and I'm wondering whether you think that can be particularly effective or are we just have we re- re- kind of retreated to opposite corners in a way that what Brian Stelter says about Maria Bartiromo just kind of doesn't matter? I think it doesn't matter. I do think, you know, first of all, she's not working for a, a, a legitimate, she's working for a propaganda organization, not a news organization propaganda organization with some faints and you know news um i think that's hopeless i also feel in case of the whole murdoch empire that he will do or his son will do whatever is going to make money and so that's what's going to drive them and we don't know where that's going yet it's been fascinating looking at the new york post every day and to some extent the journal and and very rarely do i look at fox news but reading about fox news They've, a lot of it's turned on a dime now. I mean, suddenly, um, you know, if you picked up this morning's New York Post, it's sort of completely respectful treatment of Biden, even his foot injury, which is the kind of thing that they would have made into a scare front page headline a month ago, um, uh, burying a lot of Trump's uh, nonsense and uh, about his legal fight and, and his and his bogus views of the election. Um, so there's a, there is a market uh, element at work with, with that to some extent with, with Fox. But otherwise, you know, press criticism of real news organizations should continue. None of them is flawless as we know, but I don't know what, I don't know what effect it has. You know, one feel, thing I feel writing opinion pieces, uh, and I've started to feel for two years during Trump is, what are we doing it for exactly? And if you're writing for a place like New York Magazine or the New York Times or the New Yorker or the Washington Post, who are you really going to persuade? What Trump voter are you really going to persuade? And, you know, for days on end, the Times op-ed page will have four pieces of, you know, uh, saying the same thing. And we all agree with it. And some of them are well done. Some of them are less well done. But I just, I, I just, the press is a factor in this. I don't know. It's very beleaguered. It's been really under attack, not just by Trump, but by the whole real fake news industry, if we can call it that, and mis- disinformation uh, industry, and, and, and particularly in social media, but also in places like Fox and and um, Newsmax and the rest. And I don't know. I mean, when, look another way to another way to look forward is what if this is unlikely, but what if Biden, particularly with this Congress. But what if Biden actually does lead on things that 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 help narrow uh, inequities uh, in this country, economic as well as uh, you know class uh, and, and and racial? Um, might that have a have an effect? Might that win people over the way, in essence, the New Deal did, even though it will never be on that scale? Uh, but the, again, that's an optimistic hope. It's not necessarily based on what's really going to happen. We could be facing just years of gridlock. Right. But I don't think it's a, a totally vain hope either. And, you know, you look back to the Affordable Care Act, 
which ultimately yeah. people liked. They did. They hated mm-hmm. Obamacare. <laughs> they liked the Affordable right. Care Act. Uh, that was the because the, they didn't get anything in the mail that said Obamacare. They they got something in the mail for the Affordable Care Act, which really did help them with stuff like pre-existing and, conditions. So, so to that point, if Biden could do a public option or something like that, yeah, maybe that's a, a win that becomes it, meaningful. Yes, and and look and look and look. These same people hated Social Security uh, when when. When they thought the government was running it, and like, and then, and then when they forgot that the government was running it, they liked it again. Remember, keep keep your government's hands off of my social security. No, and I'll I'll say this about Biden. Um, uh, he 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 has he ran a really smart campaign. I found it very reassuring. He he was being dissed when the campaign was being dissed for not putting him out more. Uh, all sorts of things, you know, being in the basement. It was a plan. Part of it was practical plan. If he had gotten sick and 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 had uh, COVID symptoms, it would have been the end of his 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 race, I think. And so they really had to protect him. But beyond that, they, the you know the choices so far, whether one agrees with all of them or not, or agrees with the policies of all of them for the cabinet, they're they're, they're kind of shrewd adult choices of people who might like you know Janet Yellen who might actually get something done. Um, uh, so I'm heartened by that. And maybe we, we can look a little bit more optimistically that there will be a, you know, a public option, that there will be, uh, an infrastructure program that will put people to work, that there may be something involving college debt. Uh, you know, that certainly that's his motivation. Certainly Biden is not in it for personal glory or a future career. So it's, it's interesting. We've never had a president this old before. Uh, and with this much on the line, and, and maybe we're going to have another surprising turn in our history, um, just like the last one, the unfortunate surprising turn we've just had. All right. You got to go, Frank Rich, I happen to know. But in 15 seconds, uh, when are we getting succession back? Let's talk about the important thing here. We started shooting two weeks ago in New York, to our amazement, with lots of testing, uh, lots of COVID precautions, Knockwood, you know, it's going well. We could be interrupted. If we're not interrupted, we hope, you know, late next, late summer of 21, Ooh. fall 21, you know, we have a lot to do, yeah. but um, I'm feeling optimistic about that for the first time in a year. So that's eight months anyway. So that's, that's a plot from yeah, we'll that's a good, that's a glass half full, uh, admittedly, in the world eight, of fiction eight. rather than fact. But as we know, the two of them tend to catch up and merge. Frank Rich, so great to talk to you. Great to hear your great voice. Great talking to you, Colin. Right. Take care. He's got to go. Uh, I got to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk to uh, a, one of our formidable commentators on American Catholicism. Maybe our most formidable commentator on American Catholicism. We have a new black cardinal, which is a first. Uh, and we have a president who, who is uh, openly uh, passionate about his Catholic faith. Haven't had something like that in a long time either. So what's what's that going to add up to? You won't listen. You always stay in How can I miss you and you won't go away? I mean it too. All right. Uh, we are back. Um, we're going to talk now to one of our regular guests, Michael Sean Winters, uh, is a columnist at the National Catholic Reporter and uh, a fellow at the Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life at Trinity College. Um, we have a lot to talk about, uh, including, in fact, um, a new cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. So, Michael Sean Winters, welcome back to the air. Good to be with you, Colin. 
So let's uh, talk about that. First of all, just kind of tell us a little bit uh, about Wilton Gregory, uh, who was the Archbishop of Washington and became the first African-American Cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church here in America. So Wilton uh, grew up in Chicago. Uh, he, he was uh, raised as a Protestant, but he went to Catholic schools, and there he decided he wanted to be a priest. And the uh, pastor pulled him aside and said, well, before you become a priest, you have to become a Catholic. And so he became a Catholic and a priest. Uh, he was uh, very, very bright, rose quickly, was a protege of Cardinal Joseph Bernadine, who in the 80s and 90s was the real champion of um, kind of a more engaged, more moderate uh, Catholicism, not the kind of culture war Catholic version of, of Jerry Falwell that we got in the uh, uh, first uh, decade of, of the 21st century. Uh, he became a bishop very young, age 36, um, was elected president of the Bishops' Conference, was the president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference during the meltdown and the sex abuse crisis in Boston in 2002, and really, uh, you know, corralled the bishops into coming into and coming up with what we know as the Dallas Charter for the Protection of Children, uh, which really, you know, wrapped our hands around. Since from that point forward, most of the revelations are from from abuse that happened in the 70s or 80s or, or early 90s. So you don't have a lot of uh, abuse after 2002. Uh, he was then Archbishop of Atlanta for many years, was a candidate to come to Washington uh, the previous time it had been open uh, in 2006. Washington, you know, being a majority black city. Um, but then uh, in, in uh, 2019, he was finally brought in up to Washington and the Pope decided to make him a cardinal. It's, I don't think it was surprising um, given that really illustrative uh, career, but given uh, two things that happened this year, one was the kind of sense of a national reckoning with race this summer. And secondly, you will, may recall um, when President uh, Trump crossed Lafayette Square to St. John's Episcopal Church and held the, the photo op with the Bible. Uh, the next day he was scheduled to go to a Catholic venue owned by the Knights of Columbus and Wilton denounced the Knights for hosting him in very public terms and said uh, this was incomprehensible given the president's behavior. Uh, and and in light of all of that, the Pope still went ahead and made him a cardinal. So I think uh, I think the Holy Father has uh, showed his uh, political hand a little bit. <laughs> well, um, the Holy Father's uh, beliefs and values, as they tend to be in that particular office, are are on the table in a matter of record. And he's been saying straight along that he sees the mission of the church and the mission of Christ in maybe broader terms than the church has sometimes construed them, that it has to be more about than just issues of marriage, issues of sexual orientation, issues of reproduction, that it's bigger than that, that it involves the poor in a very, very significant way. It involves economic and environmental justice. And so uh, should we see Wilton Gregory as a choice that kind of not only reinforces that statement, because, in fact, a subset of, uh, of American bishops have really kind of pushed back against Pope Francis uh, on some of this, but also maybe as predictive of a way in which some of these issues might get engaged uh, here in this country by the church more than they have in years past? Certainly. I, I, I think, you know, Wilton Gregory is part of the Pope Francis wing of the church here in the United States. Uh, there were others, but he's the one who's going to be in Washington, right? He will become Joe Biden's pastor 
uh, on, on January 20th. And so that really puts him in the catbird seat to be the public face of the Catholic Church um, in, in dealing with politicians, right? Um, the president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, Jose Gomez, the Archbishop of Los Angeles, um, is not the most effective leader. He's in Los Angeles. It's, uh, there's time zone differences. I, I, I would look for Wilton to be the real face and voice of the Catholic Church in dealing with the administration, but also more generally in commenting on politics. The, the, and in addition to the list of issues uh, that you mentioned that are of concern that this Pope has highlighted, obviously, you know, he has a unique perspective on race being the first African-American, though, you know, obviously not the first black cardinal because Africa right. has had, right. you know, 30 or 40 cardinals. So um, since you just alluded to whose pastor he's going to be, let's talk a little bit about how that ties in, too. I mean, it's difficult to know with Biden being president-elect right now what it's going to mean. But it means something uh, to have an American president who uh, who is unabashed uh, about the role that Catholicism played in his life, as opposed to, say, a John Kerry who might try to dial things down a little bit. So as you look at that, uh, there does seem to be kind of an interesting intersection. Uh, Pope Francis's beliefs, uh, Wilton Gregory's uh, emergence in this way uh, and in this particular geographic spot, and then the arrival of Biden. Uh, when you look at Biden, I, I, I don't know, what what role do you expect to see his religion playing in how he acts as president? Well, you know, you got to dance with the girl that brought you, and his campaign was very explicitly uh, leaning into his, his faith. First, as a, as a biographical fact, right? I mean, obviously, the, 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 his faith played such a role in, in overcoming the, the sense of loss when he lost his wife and his daughter, and then when he lost Bo. I mean, these are, are, are areas of, of, of humanity where, where we can connect and, and where if faith was not a part of the story, that would seem strange to people. Uh, but he did, you know, do more than that. It's not just the, this kind of personal understanding of faith. It was interesting, even back at the, the eulogy he gave for George Floyd's funeral, he mentioned, you know, I was raised in Catholic social teaching and faith uh, must be manifested in works. Uh, you know, let's not be clear. He's not the president of Catholic America. He's the president of, of all America. Uh, he's pro-choice. He's not uh, uh, opposed to abortion rights as, as the church teaches. So it's not... Uh, down the line that he's going to govern as a, as a Catholic president. But I do think, um, you know, there's two points to this. One is the way in which Joe Biden, both as a candidate and I think as a president is going to be what I, what we could call a cultural Catholic. He shows up late to mass. He may leave a little early, but he's, he's always there. He's a real B plus Catholic. I think at, at the very least he's, he's, uh, cares about religion. I don't know that he can, you know, cite uh, line and verse of papal teaching on this, that uh, issue. Um, but everybody knows someone like Joe Biden, if you're Catholic. Everybody has an uncle who's like Joe Biden. There's, he's a good guy, and he's pretty straight shooting, and, and, and he cares about people. He's got this incredible empathy. Um, now, how does that, does that extend over into to the challenges of, of particular issues? Um, you know, we'll see. I do think the the pandemic is going to require, has first of all demonstrated the limits of libertarianism in a way nothing else has in my lifetime, and really calls forth a remaking of the economy in ways that, that lean into the more communitarian Catholic um, 
it, you know, uh, understandings of, of social life. You know, for, for Catholics, the first goal of politics is not the preservation of individual liberties. It's the attainment of the common good, of which, you know, preserving individual liberties is a part. But the, the common good theme, I think you will see Biden hitting again and again and, and again. Uh, will his faith go as far as I would like and to maybe see it challenge the kind of cultural sense of meritocracy that we have in this country? You know, uh, listening to Frank Rich, Rich he mentioned, um, you know, college loan uh, forgiveness. And, and I can't believe Democrats still have not learned to say, you know, we, we, we want to uh, uh, forgive college loans. But here's first the program that we're going to do for the kids who don't go to college. Mm -hmm. And they wonder why they lose in large parts of, of America where you know, people are like, so I'm going to pay for that. That kid who got ahead by going to college, I've got to pay for it, even though my kid isn't getting ahead. Um, will, will, will Biden's faith lead him to challenge that kind of cultural presumption? And I think that's probably a bridge too far. Well, although it's an interesting question and the way that you just framed it, I can't imagine that it would fall entirely on, on unsympathetic ears uh, if you put it that way to him. And it does seem as though we've been through, I think, you know, four years of uh, of leadership that pr although occasionally President Trump with it would invoke some moral source, although never very persuasively, some kind of, you know, spiritual or moral pole star by which he was steering again, very rarely and 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 unpersuasively, at least to me, you know, it'll be interesting, I think, in the way that you're talking about, if Biden begins by articulating a set of principles. Four years ago, we had a speech about American carnage at the inauguration. I mean, it seems like maybe that's where it all begins. Uh, Michael Sean Winters, as you think about listening to his inauguration, uh, are there specific things that you're hoping he will say that signal the kind of thing you just talked about? Yeah, I mean, I, I would look back to the Democratic National Convention where for, you know, four nights he, he controlled the uh, uh, the message. Um, and I'd also point to some research by Lee Drutman, who looking back at the 2016 election, kind of classified uh, people on, you know, we say, oh, someone's progressive. And he said, well, are they progressive on economic issues or on social issues? And he charted it. And obviously people who are progressive on both are the core of the Democratic Party. People who are conservative on both core of the Republicans. And then, but those who are, are liberal on social issues, but conservative on fiscal issues, the kind of, you know, Michael Bloomberg uh, world, that was like 3.8% of the population. But those who are a little more conservative on social issues, but liberal on, on, on economic issues, what I would call the Pope Francis voters, um, that's like 28% of the population. So there's a real easy way for the Democrats and Joe Biden to become the majority party. Unfortunately, you know the kind of the, the the kinds of people who work on campaigns, who 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 run uh, uh, polling outlet outfits, who staff uh, Congress and, and a White House. They come from elite institutions that tend to prioritize cultural liberalism over economic liberalism. So there's that built-in tension within the Democratic Party. I, I I think you saw it. It was a remarkable thing at the Democratic convention. For four nights, the word abortion was not mentioned once. Mm -hmm. In 2012, at the Charlotte Convention, it was abortion palooza, right? Yeah. You know? and, and that was by design. Mm -hmm. Can you sustain that over four years of a presidency? 
I have my doubts. We're going to have to leave it on that question mark right there. Michael Sean Winters, columnist with the National Catholic Reporter. Great to hear your voice again, too. It's old home week on the show today. Uh, <laughs> we'll take a little break here. Thanks to Cat Pastor for uh, producing at the studio. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing this episode. We'll be back with, of all things, the NFL. So for people like me who were big fans uh, of the uh, television sitcom, if that's the right word, The Good Place, any story involving Blake Bortles, uh, a quarterback in the NFL, is inherently funny. Well, that was tested this past weekend. Uh, Bortles was one of four quarterbacks uh, on the roster of the Denver Broncos, who all of whom were not available. Uh, and that is because of COVID exposures, in one case because of a, a positive test. Uh, and that is very symbolic, I, I think, of the kind of trouble the NFL seems to be veering into. Here to tell us more is Ken Belson, who covers the, the NFL for the New York Times. Ken Belson, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on. So there's a way in which the Broncos dilemma, I mean, it was sort of weird enough to be intriguing, you know, that they, I guess, counting their practice squad, had four quarterbacks. They couldn't use any of them. Uh, if it were for some other reason, it would have been kind of a little bit funny and maybe a little bit fascinating. This, however, seemed more nervous making than anything else. Well, it was symbolic of two things. One is uh, that the entire NFL enterprise this season has relied on the honor code which is to say players uh, showing up for their tests, uh, not just players, players, coaches, and staffs uh, showing up for tests every day and being honest about where they've been off campus. Um, and this is a particularly critical point in the calendar. Not only is it deep in the season, um, but people have just had uh, families over and friends over for Thanksgiving. And so exposures are even higher than they normally would be. Uh, and in this case, uh, the three Broncos quarterbacks who were exposed to the fourth quarterback who tested positive were not forthcoming about being in meeting rooms with him, not wearing their masks, uh, not wearing their tracking devices and so forth. So the honor code um, went off the rails in this case. Uh, and the second thing is that um, at this point in the season, there's always been a risk that uh, the players in the closest proximity to each other uh, would all go out at once. And we had another instance of this a few weeks back on the on the uh, Las Vegas Raiders where uh, one player on the offensive line tested positive and then everybody else was sitting in the meeting room with him and had close contact and also had to isolate for five days. In the, that case, those players had enough time, enough uh, time on the, the schedule to make it to Sunday and play. In this case, it happened so late in the week that the quarterbacks had to sit out. So there was the honor code was broken and, and the um, the NFL sort of worst case scenario of entire position groups going out uh, came to fruition. 
Right. I want to come back to the honor code uh, in just a second. Uh, one of the other strange paradoxes here is that the same disease which causes the problem, COVID-19, also makes it very hard to get a different player in uh, if you're having a, a, a crisis. And we should mention that for people who don't follow football, I mean, these teams, they typically have a have rooms uh, dedicated to various positions. So there's kind of a receiver's room. Uh, there's a quarterback's room where they meet during the week and talk about stuff. And that's sort of what you're saying, that you get all four quarterbacks in one room. If one of them is positive, everybody's in danger. But the other problem is you can't sign somebody because they've got to go through a protracted, what is it, a five-day protocol? Uh, well, they can play on the sixth there or take part in activities on the sixth. Yeah, so they couldn't on a Saturday when this was all disclosed. There was no time to, to sign somebody uh, off another roster or a free agent. Uh, that was not possible. So, you know, in terms of the honor code, maybe we, you could say a little bit more about how that's all working out. I mean, it has to work within a team. Team The players have to be honest uh, and, and forthright within the context of the team. And then the teams, I assume, have to be honest with the league itself. And, and there are, uh, have been some fairly large fines and penalties handed out, I think, when the league felt that wasn't happening. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So the NFL opted, unlike the NBA and NHL, uh, which constructed essentially uh, their entire league inside a community, a closed community in the case of the NBA down in Orlando, uh, where they took over a bunch of hotels and, and staggered the practices and games so that the players could come and go and they could finish their season and, and, um, and into the playoffs. The NFL opted not to do that. They went sort of the way baseball went, which was when you're in the clubhouse, when you're in the stadium, when you're around your teammates on the team bus and so forth, it's pretty tightly controlled. Um, but once you leave the facility, you're on your own. And that's where the honor code comes in. And, um, you know, in most cases, uh, the NFL uh, the facilities themselves are very well run. They have testing every single day. Uh, the lockers are now spaced out from each other, so there's six feet. Um, the weight room is used in a staggered format, so not everybody's close to each other. The players are supposed to wear masks and so forth. That's fine. At the end of the day, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, they all drive home. And what the NFL has found early in the season is that, in fact, players, most players that got uh, COVID or ended up testing positive weren't going out to clubs or restaurants, this sort of worst case scenario of people being reckless. They actually just went home and were exposed to their families. And in the case of some players, uh, they were exposed to nannies, uh, helpers at home who are, again, another layer out um, and working in the real world, so to speak. Um, and so most of it was benign. And they didn't have massive outbreaks because groups of players weren't doing things recklessly together. Now it's gotten deep enough in the season and there is so much community spread in so many cities. Uh, nobody's immune from him anymore. Remember, of course, it started in the Northeast where we are uh, and in, in Southern California in pockets. Uh, then there was the summer wave um, a lot in the South, but now it's everywhere. And there's no city or town or NFL city that's exempt from any of this. I, watching the games, I'm simultaneously, as I'm sure you are, grateful to have the NFL around and it, you know, at a time when we're uh, all looking for diversions, uh, I like to be able to watch the games. But when I watch the games, it also seems as though I'm watching people who don't take this fully seriously. Or I guess what I mean by this is you look at the sidelines and, you know, most of the players are wearing masks, which they're supposed to be. But watching Chicago versus Green Bay last night, I see Aaron Rodgers run off the field. He doesn't really put on a mask. He goes over to talk to his coach, Matt LaFleur, who is masked. Uh, they're face-to-face. Rodgers isn't masked. 
Um, watching them on the field, of course, the players are often very, very close together and talking uh, to one another, sometimes talking to the other team, sometimes uh, to each other. It seems like the a, a lot of the strategy is based on an almost experimental belief that being outdoors is incredibly safe, uh, which virologists would tell you, I think, well, no, it's not 100% safe. It's just a lot safer than indoors. I, I just... I don't know what question I'm asking exactly. Exactly. So, do you get that same feeling as you're watching this? That wow, it's amazing that they don't have more spread. Well, uh, that that would that would make sense, and I have had exactly the same thought. Except that these players are tested every single day, and including on game day, which was something they started once the season was underway. Uh, and it always shocked me that they didn't start on game day, since that's when they're going to meet. 50 other players from another city. So, uh, but they have tightened the rules now. So you could argue that the 50 players you're seeing on the Packers and the 50 players on the bears are perhaps the most, um, uh, watched players or monitored players around, including their coaches. Cause they all go through the same protocols and they, they travel on these team planes together and there's no exposure to, I don't know, um, a chef in the bottom of the stadium, you know, who cooked meals. It's now all grab and go. So in some ways their, their players have all tested negative. Um, it doesn't seem to make sense because in the real world, that's not how it works that you, you don't know there's so much asymptomatic spread. Um, but, uh, and it, it still looks odd and discontinent, discontinent that, this would be going on this face-to-face contact only this last week did the NFL require the players, the players themselves to wear masks when they're off the field. The coaches of course have had that for a while, but yes, it's very jarring image, um, particularly given all the messaging we've told about, you know, standing six feet away and so forth. And here are these players, you know, arm in arm face-to-face talking to each other unmasked. Ken Belson, does it feel to you like at this point the NFL is kind of rolling the dice here? In other words, they've had this somewhat scary weekend. Uh, we didn't even talk about the fact that the San Francisco 49ers are uh, also facing the loss of the facility where they would t- typically play home games uh, and, and maybe a practice facility, too. But, I mean, more than that. You know, you see the Denver situation, you see some of the other situations. There's a Tuesday night game that I think has been postponed twice. I mean, this could all kind of blow up in the NFL's face. And I guess I wonder, you know, what what do you think the consequences of that would be if the NFL turned out to have over the last few weeks of its current season, the worst COVID-19 problem in professional sports? You know, I don't know. What's what's the the downside of that? How, How bad would things get for the league? Well, the, uh, I would argue that the league has been rolling the dice from the outset, um, but it had the benefit of watching the other leagues, uh, baseball and hockey and so forth, complete their seasons and sort of picking and choosing the best techniques that they all used. And let's give credit where it's due. They've gotten through 12 weeks with only two major outbreaks, one in Tennessee and, and one in Baltimore, um, and a lot of isolated cases and obviously some very odd circumstances like in Denver. But they've gotten at week 12 if you remember in baseball, the Miami Marlins were down like within the first week or 10 mm-hmm. days, Philadelphia, they had a whole cascade of them early in their season. So in some ways, the NFL has done quite well to get to three quarters of their regular season without these um, dominoes all falling at once. And, you know, um, frankly, the Baltimore, Denver and San Francisco cases are all three separate cases. They're not knocking into each other at least just yet um that's the first thing the second thing is you know they built in a lot of flexibility here there was somebody who said the other day on twitter you know you can't televise a forfeit um the the 
league's money, half of the league's revenue comes from television contracts and another quarter of it comes from sponsorships and merchandise. So uh, from their perspective, as long as the games are going on, they're still collecting paychecks. And by the way, the players are too. Nobody wants to forfeit games. Um, so they're doing everything they can to get through some semblance of a season. Um, you know, look, baseball had only 60 games. That's the ultimate asterisk. It wasn't even a full season. The, the NFL, uh, in three years from now, people are not going to look back at 2020 statistics and go, well, yeah, that was the COVID year. Uh, let's take 20% off of his statistics. Um, they're just going to say it was another year. And I think they're doing as best they can under these circumstances. As long as they get to the Super Bowl, they'll feel like they've succeeded under pretty trying circumstances. Um, but, you know, again, they to be seen because they know that there's a lot of rough um, waters ahead. And uh, they could push back and add another week to the season to for makeup games to be played they could end up with uneven um, results where one team has 15 games another 16 and they've already addressed contingencies for that too and frankly they could push the super bowl back by several weeks mm -hmm. into late february if they really had to so there, there's a lot of room left on their um, list of uh, worst case scenarios to run through i have so many other questions but um, betsy kaplan informs me we have to stop uh, and i dare not gainsay her ken belson uh, covers the nfl for the new york times thank Thank you for joining us today. Sure. Pleasure. And to the rest of you, thank you for joining us today as well. Uh, we will have more shows for you this week. We'll tell you all about them on the radio.